0: Hi, everybody, it's Derek, and this is Foreign Exchanges for May 26, 2021. Hello, and welcome to Foreign Exchanges, the podcast, uh, as always. Uh, if you're new to foreign exchanges, welcome! Thank you for checking out the program. Uh, if you're, if you enjoy this interview, if you appreciate this interview, come check out the newsletter. We've got a whole setup at fx.substack.com. Uh, consider signing up for our free email list. You'll get uh, regular updates on. International affairs and U.S. foreign policy, as well as columns from our uh, ever expanding, hopefully, roster of contributors. Uh, and you'll get podcasts like this one delivered right to your inbox absolutely free Uh, if you are not new to foreign exchanges then welcome back Uh, it's wonderful to have you again Uh, i am very pleased this week uh, to bring you what i think is a is a very interesting and uh, enlightening interview with eli clifton Uh, eli is a senior advisor to the quincy institute for responsible statecraft he is the lead investigative journalist at large uh, for the Quincy Institute's responsible statecraft uh, web portal, uh, web publishing uh, outlet. Uh, He and Ben Freeman, who is the director of the Foreign Influence Transparency Initiative at the Center for International Policy, uh, have produced a new report. Uh, called Restoring Trust in the Think Tank Sector. Uh, There will be a link to that report available in the show description. Uh, It is a list of, I would say... Common sense recommendations uh, for think tanks that operate in the foreign policy sphere uh, to do a better job at uh, being a little more upfront about where their money is coming from and what kind of work they're doing. Um, we'll get into the specific recommendations of the report, but I think uh, at one point in the exchange, you will, you know, we'll we'll sort of talk about how basic these recommendations are. And it's sort of like uh, setting the bar for uh, institutions to to hurdle on the floor and knowing that a good number of places uh, that engage in think tank work um, in all areas, but but we're specifically talking about foreign policy here. Uh, can't even clear the bar that's been set on the floor in terms of letting people know where their money's coming from, uh, when they're doing work for foreign uh, governments or foreign agencies, what exactly does that work entail, uh, and identifying potential conflicts of interest. Those are the three big areas that the report talks about. Think tanks are uh, sort of an underappreciated but extremely important aspect of foreign policy making in D.C. Uh, people who work for think tanks, researchers are uh, called upon to testify before Congress. They are uh, called upon to write Op eds at influential newspapers and other media outlets. Uh, they are called upon to advise uh, the federal government and they're called upon quite frequently to work in the federal government. Uh, one of the things we'll sort of touch on in this interview is the revolving door between the private and public sectors uh, that often raises eyebrows in terms of. Um, people's allegiances and who's having influence on on our uh, the way our government is setting policy and, and enacting policy uh think tanks produce reports that are read by, you know, influential folks in Congress, in the uh, the executive branch that help to set the agenda for a particular presidential administration, and as we're uh, just at the beginning still of the one that uh, is currently in the White House. Uh, this is a topic that I think is quite worth engaging with um and so i was very uh pleased to see this report um full disclosure i know eli a bit uh we worked together in the old uh old days at l o b e l o g uh, L-O-B-E-L-O-G.com. It's an archive. It's been, uh, you know, frozen in time, frozen in the uh, digital equivalent of Amber. Uh, but Eli wrote frequently for them. I wrote for them. I edited uh, blog uh, for a while. Um, so I know him from, from there and I know his work. And that's part of the reason I kind of took notice uh, at this report. But I think it's a very timely, very, uh, badly needed, uh, again, set of recommendations that to me are just com- basic common sense, uh, but that apparently are, uh, pretty radical when it comes to the world of think tanks and, and DC policy, uh, making. So, um, uh, I'm very excited to have Eli. I'm very excited to talk about this. I hope that you will enjoy the interview. Uh, with all of that said, uh, let me get him on the line and we'll start. All right. As I said in the intro, uh, I am being joined by Eli Clifton, senior advisor at the Quincy Institute and uh, investigative journalist for their Responsible Statecraft uh, platform. Uh, He and Ben Freeman, sorry, excuse me, Freeman, uh, who is the director of the Foreign Influence Transparency Initiative, at the Center for International Policy have just written uh, a report um, actually i guess it's a couple of weeks old at this point but uh, you know we get to these things eventually uh, it's called restoring trust in the think tank center a sector uh, and uh, really is is a, a set of i think very important recommendations that think tanks in dc could take uh, to try to restore some public trust uh, in the work that they do, uh, Eli, thanks for coming on the program to talk about your uh, your work here.
1: Thanks so much for having me.
0: So I wanted to ask you. I mean, you've done a lot of work um, going back to the old days when when we were all at low block, <laughs> the, the 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 ancient times. Um, you've done a lot of work on the intersection of money and politics, especially when it concerns U.S. foreign policy. I mean, you wrote pretty extensively. Uh, during the the 2016 presidential campaign, about the connections between Sheldon Adelson and Donald Trump, and then during his presidency, how that kind of manifested on his uh, his approach to Middle Eastern issues. Let's say, um, so I mean, this is a this is a beat that you you're you're pretty well traveled in. Um, was the think tank part of it? something that that's always interested you or is it something that you came to kind of after getting into the the bigger kind of money and politics angle
1: yeah i'd actually uh uh I, I i would say think tanks actually have been sort of this what drew me into the interest in money and politics and that intersection with u.s foreign policy uh and it goes back to even probably pre blog to uh when i was just first getting started with Jim Loeb at Interpress Service uh, at their DC Bureau and which is for those who don't know, it's a, it's a small wire service that, that mostly produces um, um, content for the global South. And one of the things I would regularly do as, as part of that job and a lot of reporters in Washington do it is uh, cover the reports and events of think tanks. And this was uh, this would have been in starting in what was it 2004. So this is in the wake of the invasion of Iraq. And, uh, and, of, and of Afghanistan. And what I got to see up close was the way in which so many of these think tanks, um, well, I shouldn't say so many, really there's very few, <laughs> um, uh, managed to shape the policy debate and certainly um, the policy choices that were being made by the George W. Bush administration. And at the time, the think tanks that seemed very influential were the American Enterprise Institute, the Foundation for Defensive Democracies, Hudson Institute Heritage Foundation. Um, and, and partially as a reaction to that, there was the buildup of some uh, more progressive or Democratic-leaning think tanks like the Center for American Progress. But I guess the thing that really jumped out at me uh, from the first events I attended was just how well-moneyed these think tanks were. They have really nice offices. They have really nice buildings. And I started to see very quickly how they have a really big outside influence on the policy debate. Their experts are regularly quoted in the news, they go on cable television, they're the talking heads that you hear talking about uh, policies as as regional experts often. They're producing reports which are circulated, that are written up by journalists, that are circulated on Capitol Hill, that make it into uh, the intelligence uh, services, that make it to the State Department, um, which inform them about, about what U.S. policy could or should be. Uh, and these and these uh, experts from think tanks very often show up as witnesses before Congress, before especially sort of the House Foreign Affairs Committee, the House Armed Services Committee, um, talking about again their areas of, of of regional focus. And and what I started to see is, hey, this, this is a pretty relatively small group of people, from an even smaller group of institutions. Um, and who are they? And who's funding them? And at that point in time, most of these think tanks did not disclose who their funders were. It was simply not considered relevant. Uh, their their legal formation, which is 501 C threes generally um, have no obligation to disclose funders. And all I could really see from those, uh, their, their 990 tax filings, which are sort of that show their their finances year over year was that they had a lot of money. I mean, very in many cases, they have 10s of millions of dollars, some have 100 million dollars plus budgets. Um, and we don't know where that money comes from. And the more I started to look at it, the more I saw ah oh, this is really interesting. Uh, clearly, some of the biggest political funders and donors on both sides of the aisle in fairness um, who don't don't just fund a house and senate and presidential campaigns they're also funding the think tanks who in turn are advising the candidates and the politicians who's who benefit from their funding as well so you have this really small uh, uh, group of people of the politicians and these think tank folks being funded and in many ways, influenced by an even smaller group of people, which are these funders. And these funders have, I believe successfully created uh, pretty small echo chambers, the highly effective ones at shaping uh, the policy debate for politicians that many cases they've helped get elected. Um, so that was sort of the, the introduction I got to the think tank world and why I thought it was, hey, this is something that should be talked about, maybe talked about in the same manner when it comes to foreign policy that, that we talk about any other policy debate. Any other domestic policy debate on, you know, be it taxation, regulatory issues, social issues like abortion or or same-sex marriage. uh, Everybody accepts that, hey, there are a variety of viewpoints here and there are special interests and there are money that have an interest in the outcome of these debates. But for some reason with foreign policy, we've been holding it apart, sort of suggesting that it's this thing where, oh, you know, everybody's coming to this with the same series of interests and we're just trying to all come to the same idea. And we want to be in rabid agreement as much as we can. Uh, And I think that's really disingenuous. And I think we need to normalize that debate and make it like other policy debates in this country. It's
0: sort of the the myth of the water's edge, right? Where we're all basically in agreement on foreign policy. It's just, you know, we, we differ here and there, but it's not like, you know, we fight about domestic policy. But yeah, I mean, none of it is actually borne out by reality, but, right. but it's like, sort like of like a, a myth it's like, that's you built know, up. Like
1: gun control or abortion, as I say, or the estate tax, you know, where just everybody gets it, right? That, yeah, there's, people have different views on this and that's that's okay. Maybe that's a good thing even, right? Uh, and right, people right. cynical about that and say, yeah, and there's special interests and there's astroturf groups and, you know, just because somebody's an expert from an institution in Washington, well, there's probably some money and interest behind them that have an interest in this, perhaps, or not, but it's okay to look at that. It's okay to ask those questions. Uh, and I think with foreign policy, especially with the think tanks that shape the debate more so than on other domestic policy issues, I believe, um, uh, that hasn't really been you know, something that's been allowed to seep into the, the discourse.
0: In the the time that you've been covering this stuff, and, and this is something that that you and, and Ben mentioned in the report, the, you talk about the changing... Uh, nature of think tanks to some degree, you know, think tanks getting more overtly political, more partisan, um, engaging even in some some things that could be called lobbying. Uh, what are what are some of the big shifts that you've seen in the way think tanks operate? Uh, you know, since you've you've been covering this stuff.
1: Um, w- well, I I think one trend has been certainly um, the more explicit. I could say sort of partisan or political nature of the think tanks. I'm sure that's always been there. Um and and some of the think tanks uh, especially some of the older ones continue to to span um you know party lines, you know Brookings, CSIS, not to endorse their work or or to or to reject it, but you know that they have people that definitely would identify with with both party affiliations. But I I think that the growth and the influence, and and I think it's probably been going on for maybe 30 years, um, of the buildup of especially more partisan think tanks on the right, Uh, the role the Heritage Foundation has played. And they've done so with with probably at least since the 1980s um, with uh, influencing Republican administrations and Republicans in Congress, really becoming the brain trust of the Republican Party. Uh, And then later on in in the 2000s, the inception of the Center for American Progress, which uh, was supposed to sort of balance that a bit, being uh, the democratic think tank, uh, the, the go-to democratic think tank, and in full disclosure, I, I used to work there. Um, and and then the buildup of even Media Matters, which uh, was also very much focused on sort of um, uh, center-left uh, or left um, uh, uh Politics. So I think that, and then again on the right, the American Enterprise Institute, building up as as also a right wing think tank. Uh, I, I think that also the flood of money into them has gone up, uh, and with that flood of money has also come um, foreign money as well. Uh, and I I think that's probably a, again a strong indicator. Uh, putting aside notions that of course foreign governments want to influence US policy, I mean, why wouldn't they? Um, There's also this aspect that I think they are acknowledging. uh, When you see the UAE, when you see Saudi Arabia, when you see even Norway uh, investing in American think tanks on both sides of the aisle, what you're really seeing is that these countries have identified what we're talking about here, which is that these are influential institutions for shaping policy. Uh, And I think as these institutions clearly became perceived as more and more effective at influencing the policy debate and perhaps even doing so in a partisan manner. Um, There was the flood of of not just corporate interests, special interest money, uh, certainly partisan political donors. I think it started to increase their giving to think tanks. I'm speculating a bit here, but I think that's been the case. Uh, I think you also saw the increase in foreign funders coming in as well, foreign governments that wanted to influence US policy uh, for obviously their own reasons.
0: I, one of the things that that got talked about, um, I, I, you probably saw these these reports from uh, the American Prospect, for example, uh, during the the formation of the Biden cabinet was the rise of these uh, basically organizations that, that are called strategic consultancies, um, many of which have been around for a long time. I mean, you know, Madeleine Albright has one, and Kissinger, you know. Uh, has one, uh, so they're not a new thing. But there is sort of this explosion in recent years of these groups that that really seem to play around with the nexus of kind of buying access while also providing, you know, the kind of advice or support that a, a think tank might provide, uh, while also maybe doing some some things that are more explicitly lobbying without kind of having that label attached to it. Is that, is that something that you've noticed kind of these groups like West exec is a big one, you know, Anthony Blinken or Anthony Blinken was uh, working there with Michelle Flournoy, who many people thought was going to be Biden's defense secretary turned out not to be, but, but the groups like that kind of cropping up. That that blur the lines a little bit. Is that something that you you've uh, seen in your in your work?
1: Absolutely, and and I think I think you probably pointed to two of the really important ones that started that trend. Really, Kissinger Associates um, may have been one of the earliest ones to to have pursued this uh, advisory role. Um, Albright Stonebridge. I would also point to Teneo, um, which was sort of uh, set up by former Clinton people. Uh, and and they in turn invested into uh, WestExec recently, uh, and and I think what what they accomplish by doing this is they gain plausible deniability to avoid registering as lobbyists. Um, generally, these PLAs do not have people registered as lobbyists, um, and they also, alongside many of the think tanks that I've looked at, uh, have. I believe consistently. Actually, Tanea registered under the Foreign Agent Registration Act, but generally, they they have avoided uh, FARA registration. Um, so they do have foreign clients, and my understanding is that they avoid registering under FARA by saying that, well, uh, really, what they're offering is government, foreign government to foreign government or foreign country to foreign country consultancy services, and as long as it doesn't involve them doing things in the United States um, on behalf of their foreign of their foreign principal, being an agent of a foreign government, then, well, they don't need to register under that. Now, now where things get very interesting is when you go down the list of, so just just to use an example, Albright, Stonebridge, and WestExec, uh, just because I'm, I'm, I've looked at them more closely. I think it's probably true of these other consultancy services as well. But if you go through the list of their, of their experts um, and even their principals, that you will see that a lot of them wear multiple hats. Um, so they'll have a role at, you know, Albright Stonebridge or WestExec, but then they'll also have a job um, at, you know, let's say the Center for American Progress or the Heritage Foundation. Um, They'll have a job at, at a think tank that does explicitly talk to the US government, that does explicitly produce content for consumption inside the United States and to influence the policy debate inside the United States. So now you have this situation where somebody can work at one of these consultancies uh, in theory, just be offering advice back to the foreign government, which you don't need to lobby to do that. You don't need to file under Farah to do that. They, in theory, could be providing services involving working on behalf of a foreign client and then going and doing something elsewhere in the world with, with them. Um, and coincidentally, they're going to have this other job where they are going to talk to the US public. They are going to produce public information, and they are going to talk to members of the government uh, about policy that may come up against their foreign client at uh, their consultancy uh, gig. And so you have this really muddy water where it's pretty hard to enforce it legally in terms of the lobbying or FARA component of it. Um, But what you quickly see is that, you know, there are an alignment of interests here. You do have, you know, why are the weapons companies, why are foreign governments signing up to pay people at these consultancies, Um, and why do these consultancies provide so little transparency into who their clients are and what they're doing, uh, considering the caliber of clients that they are, uh, that through other reporting we've seen that they have. It's pretty striking what's going on here, uh, that this is a way to inject money into uh, uh, the policy debate and inject money into, into a group of individuals who happen to have the ears of policymakers and are likely to head back into government. Finally, I think one thing it offers is, and I think pointed to Michelle Flournoy and, and Anthony Blinken are, are great examples of it, that it's an opportunity, frankly, to just shovel money into the pockets of people who are likely to be going back into government. It doesn't take a genius to look at these people and say, hey, these are talented individuals. They've already been in government. There's a high likelihood that they're gonna go back into government. And because for instance, you know Trump is president for at least four years, you can make an educated guess or a bet or a wager that these folks may be headed back into government in just a few years time. So if you can shovel some money into their pockets, it certainly increases the likelihood that you're gonna have their ear when they're in government and increases likelihood they're gonna be sympathetic to whatever uh, policies it is that that you're trying to to get out of the next government, be it from a, a US defense contractor or a foreign government or just a US corporation of some sort.
0: I think that's a that's a really good point, and it's it's sort of you know when people think about um, the the role that money plays in kind of fostering um, the connections that go on behind the scenes, that there's this sort of um, instinct to to look at things that are kind of overtly explicitly uh, pay to play type relationships. Like I'm going to give you some money and you're going to do this for me. But in fact, you know, a lot of the, the stuff that goes on, as you say, it's, it's, it goes on, first of all, when, when these people are not in power, when they're not in office, because under the expectation that they will be back at some point. Um, and it's really about building up a goodwill and a relationship so that when they are in power, uh, you, you have, uh, you know, an affinity for for these folks. It's not uh, just a strictly kind of quid pro quo type of a thing. When you were talking, i I, I looked up and I don't mean to to pick on her uh, necessarily though I think she's a good example. Uh, I pulled up Michelle Flournoy's uh, bio from Booz Allen, where she serves on the board of directors uh, at the same time that she's leading West Exec. Uh, she's still on the board of the Center for New American Security. Uh, she's on the defense policy board, so in a sense, even though she didn't uh, get, you know, the defense secretary to spot, she still has an inroad to the defense department, um, and and she's serving on the board of Booz Allen, a, a huge defense contractor. Are these these the kinds of? resumes that people, I mean, is this a common sort of collection of things to have uh, a foot in the think tank community, a foot in the consulting, a foot in the uh, uh, the defense contractor and, you know, some inroad into government? Are, are these the kind of nexuses uh, that you see uh, a lot of?
1: Absolutely. And, you know, the thing that that jumps out at me time after time after time is that if we come to this, you know, I think you're right. People don't don't want to engage in pay for play. Um, not even even an ethical matter. I think people just genuinely don't want to feel like they're bought, right? So I, I think I, I don't think that, for instance, you know the defense contractors or, or foreign governments that had, let's say, West exact as a client um demanded, you know hey, i'm going I'm gonna do this contract with you, and when you go back into government, I need you to do X, y, and z. However, as I think you just pointed out, you know there's this notion that, hey, if these are the people who were your who were your you know biggest clients, when you were out of power and you're heading back in um, you know they're probably not investing in you for no reason they probably think that you know there's a possibility perhaps even a high likelihood that you'll be more sympathetic to them and to their and to what they need when you go back into government and if that is the case, these people are dirt cheap. <laughs> <laughs> that's the thing that we always keep forgetting. It's so easy to look at, you know, well, here's how much Saudi Arabia throws around per year, you know, whatever it is, $50 million, let's say, in, in fair registered activities. Uh, let's, you know, and, and you, you, you can put one of these people in, on the board of Lockheed Martin for a few hundred thousand dollars a year. And, you know, for you and me, that's a lot of money but let's just take a step back here and look at the fact that, hey, half of the defense budget of $740 billion goes to defense contractors. And that's dominated by like the top five contractors that includes Lockheed or Boeing, or General Dynamics. The amount of money that they stand to make off of procurement decisions makes the amount of money that they are investing in in potentially the potential of getting some sympathy out of individuals who are gonna be in key key decision-making roles it's just idiotically cheap. Washington is dirt cheap. Buying people in Washington, as you see with the Farah registrations, people sign up to lobby for Saudi Arabia, or I shouldn't say lobby, to consult for Saudi Arabia for contracts that are you know, 10 or $20,000 a month. Now is carrying water for Mohammed bin Salman when he goes and kills Jamal Khashoggi what these people really want to do? Probably not, but that's literally like a quid pro quo there. You are paying these people and they are doing it. Uh, Norm Coleman, a top lobbyist for Saudi Arabia, has talked about it. He's like, yeah, I mean, it's not my job to give advice to Saudi Arabia. It's my advice to tell Congress what Saudi Arabia wants, wants from them. And you can put the price on what these people are being paid to do that. And for the return that the corporations or foreign governments get off of this, it's laughable. It is really silly how cheap, how cheap uh, at least these these foreign governments and corporations, the price that they've put on individuals in Washington, D.C.
0: So there you go, folks, you're underselling yourselves, bid higher, Eli Clifton says (laughs) value yourself.
1: Yes. (laughs) <laughs> I mean, um, look at the return that you offer on the investment exactly like, exactly if you're gonna do this
0: <laughs> all right so um let's let's get into the report what was the sort of uh, genesis of the this report that you did with ben freeman and, and uh you know kind of give people a, a sense of what your aim was in in doing this project?
1: yeah. so so Ben and I had spent many years, um, and Ben slightly from a more academic uh, approach, and myself a more journalistic one, uh, but covering a lot of the same topics, which are basically covering uh, foreign influence in Washington uh, and covering think tank uh, transparency or the the lack thereof about their sources of funding. And in doing so, we we kind of started talking uh, maybe six to six months ago or so about, Hey, you know, maybe we should do something that's a little more uh, positive for lack of a better term, forward thinking, saying, well, we talk a lot about what the problems are, but do we have some some sort of baseline things that we would say would help help resolve some of those problems? Because believe it or not, both of us actually think that think tanks are, pretty important, um, you know, you, th- they can serve and have served in many instances valuable roles uh, in basically being, you know, a, a brain trust in Washington, D.C. That, that that consults with Congress, as we've talked about earlier and, and policymakers um, and, and offers them sort of a depth of knowledge that perhaps they don't have directly in government and that can be tied into a network of experts even outside of the beltway uh, and, and in doing so, we we said hey there's there's some simple standards that um, uh, think tanks have chosen for the most part not to hold themselves to, but these are standards that outside of the Beltway, uh, be it in in science in medical journals or in journalism uh, in major publications or even minor publications are just kind of expected. Yeah, that's written down, but it's also just expected, uh, and and that's where we said hey you know th- that we can probably boil this down to like three things that would actually. Really improve the standards uh, that that the think tank sector um, uh, is is going to need to hold themselves to if if they want to regain the public trust. Uh, and and we looked at at yeah you know, hey the, the trust in government is somewhere near a record lows like 20% of people trust trust the policymakers and only 20% of people in a poll that was done a couple of years ago even knew what think tanks were for that matter. So think tanks are you know they they're a part of the policymaking process that people don't don't trust already and most people don't even know what they are. Um, so people are not inclined to have positive sentiment toward toward them if they even find out what they are, um, and and sort of the basic things that we came up with was that hey why don't you just disclose your donors uh, donor disclosure it's becoming more common with think tanks it could still be better, um, and that just being transparent in funding as, as a matter of practice for the industry would would really be would really be helpful it would it would help to preempt uh, criticism of of potential or potential criticism of of undisclosed conflicts of interest. Uh, involving funders and, and the research products. And, and the long-term benefits really outweigh the short-term you know, pain or difficulty of, of disclosing one's funders. Um, I mean, I was involved with helping set up the Quincy Institute and, and very on we said, hey, we're gonna be transparent about our funders. You don't have to like our funders. We do have some standards about who will take us funders. We don't take foreign governments, but we know, hey, you know, Charles Koch Foundation is, is a funder of ours and some people won't like that. it's better to put it out there and have people know that and they can criticize us for it. Um, and they can look at our work and say, hey, is this influencing it or not? Um, and we believe it doesn't. But we'd rather have that conversation up front and put it out there than make it something that you're trying to bury uh, and, and, and and hope people don't notice. Um, and then the second thing we said is that, hey, good faith efforts to, to disclose um, uh, activities that might require fair registration. Um, is really essential. And thus far, think tanks have largely uh, avoided um, or refused to register under the Foreign Agent Re- Registration Act. Now, part of the blame is on the Justice Department for not being so clear about who needs to register and why. But any reading of the statute or most people's reading of the statute comes to the conclusion that think tanks are certainly not exempt from it. There's no think tank exemption. There's no 501 exemption from Para. There are some academic exemptions, but think tanks have sometimes tried to claim that they fall in that category. Uh, it's a real stretch because clearly the work that they do is intended to influence the public debate about policy. That's pretty much their mission and there's nothing the matter with that mission, but If you're taking money from a foreign government and you're doing anything uh, for them as a result of that, such as writing a report, which is something that uh, um, has become pretty common, uh, you should disclose that, you know, and maybe do so not just in the report, but maybe you have an obligation to file under the Foreign Agent Registration Act. And finally, think tanks should try to proactively identify the appearance of potential conflicts of interest um, between their funding and their staff's work again identifying a potential conflict of interest it shouldn't be a big deal i've identified that multiple times in my own reporting where i say hey you know just earlier in this podcast i i said hey you know full disclosure i used to work at the center for american progress when i talk about these organizations uh i should identify if i have any sort of a connection to them uh, and if you are producing research that Kind of runs up against the interests uh, or something to do with your funders. It's okay to say, hey, in the interest of full disclosure, you know, we have this funder. You can even say, and they had no influence or say over this work product. Um, but it's important to 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 be proactive about that. You should be out there trying to tell people, hey, it's all right, I am identifying these, these, these potential conflicts uh, before they arise uh, in, in, in more problematic ways. Um, it's really important if you want to, the research institutions to be taken seriously um, to, to, to hold oneself to, to those sort of basic basic standards. Uh, now I know these seem maybe sort of like common sense or something that um I was going to say that
0: yes it's yeah, like
1: you're like you are like Eli why are you obviously like, people should really be doing like this we here you're like this
0: yeah. <laughs> let or something No but, but it's I mean they're not doing this so they're it's not it's doing this right
1: and and I, and I hope that maybe if people see this and say this is come on this is these are just like real low standards um I hope it it's not just something where they then turn away and say well that's just a joke why would you guys come forward and suggest that i hope the takeaway is wow like if this if if these would be considered like <laughs> right well, like the the bar well, is on the well, floor well, and we're still managing to the get under it sector, yeah. like where, what's the starting <laughs> point uh and i'll be honest the starting point is pretty bad um and 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 these this actually if, if these three things were adopted uh across the across the beltway with think tanks um it, it would frankly i think it would change the landscape um, I this that, that was
0: going to be what I you know my, my question or, or my comment was I mean, you say in the report, it's specifically with respect to registering uh, under the Foreign Agent Registration Act, this isn't none of these things needs to be a scarlet letter. Like you're not asking think tanks to change really the what they're doing. You're not asking them to uh, fundamentally reshape themselves or anything. This is just being, these the all these recommendations are just about being transparent about what they're doing uh and and i i guess i want to go through sort of all three uh big recommendations and talk about each one but the they're um there's no structural thing that has to change here it's a question of how honest are you going to be how you know kind of forthcoming are you going to be with the public uh about what you're doing
1: yeah i mean i i, I think you make a great point there and and Maybe I'm a little optimistic, but I actually do believe that if some of these things were adopted, I think you might see some, some changes, I think you might see some structural changes that go beyond what's being um, uh, laid out here as the actual tangible steps that need to happen. I think if you're going to be totally transparent about your funders, um, you might make some, start to make some hard decisions about who your sure. funders will be. Sure. Um, You know, you might decide that, hey, having United Arab Emirates or Saudi Arabia as a funder is fine if I'm not going to disclose it. Um, You know, you you do have to start to take into account the reputational risk uh, that comes with certain funders. And thus far, some of the, you know, look, the American Enterprise Institute is probably one of the biggest, you know, Republican Party-aligned think tanks in Washington. They don't disclose any of their funders. Um, Do you think maybe they would... Say, or that hey, maybe I don't want you know certain funders if I have to disclose them, maybe,
0: or, also- or maybe some funders wouldn't want to be associated with <laughs> AEI if they
1: were going to be, be public exactly, they wouldn't <laughs> want to be associated with AEI if they if they knew it would be disclosed. Um, so I, I, I can't predict what what those changes would look like, but I do think that if there was a culture of transparency around that, that I think there would be some changes in terms of think tanks that funders would uh, funders that think tanks would consider to be acceptable and perhaps even funders about about who they want to fund as well
0: digging into the the first your first set of recommendation or your first big recommendation which is funding transparency there is a vast range of uh, how these organizations deal with Uh, who's funding them and and informing the public or not informing the public uh, about who's funding them all the way from uh, you know we don't disclose any information to you know we have some vague rules let's say about you know foreign government or you know some category of of funders that aren't allowed uh, to uh, you know one of the, the the places you've mentioned already the center for american progress which does these like Bracket things like they list um, their their funders in categories like you know fifty thousand dollars to I don't know five hundred thousand dollars. Here's all the people who fund us in that range, which is a little more transparent, but still you know not not a, as helpful as it could be. Um, what are what are some of the more kind of I don't know, egregious examples, I guess, or some of the the organizations that you looked at in, in putting together this report and the, the various ways that they tackle this issue?
1: Um, so doing it by sort of grouping, and I think it should be a little more reasonable than 50,000 to 500,000, um, is kind of the standard for for best case transparency from think tanks uh and and i think it's totally fair to raise well why don't you just put the exact values um again in, in fair complete disclosure quincy institute does uh we, we also do it by by sort of categories of giving um i think certainly the the a common thing is that beneath a certain amount you you, you don't disclose i i think for quincy it's, it's uh i can't recall exactly what that number is but usually it's somewhere between ten and fifty thousand dollars are the uh, sort of the floor that you disclose. So you're not going to disclose every single small dollar contribution. Um, and, you know, I think that, frankly, I think the Center for Strategic and International Studies is probably the most comprehensive and interesting and well-laid out uh, donor transparency I've seen, where they let you look at the list, by right, And you can categorize it by foreign governments, by corporations, by individuals. Um, and I think that's, I think that's great. Uh, it's obviously a lot more work to lay it out that way, but I think they do a good job with it. The the thing that uh, the, the, I guess the the middle ground, which concerns me the most, and something that I've written a little bit about, is that you know there is this space between, okay, you disclose and you do it by cat by sort of cat levels of giving, uh, but you do it comprehensively, versus uh, and, and then on the other extreme, we just don't disclose anything about our giving. Uh, so I put sort of CSIS and maybe Quincy on the you know we that's basically as good as it gets in terms of disclosure versus uh, or at least in terms of DC. Uh, and then on the other side, uh, we don't disclose anything like the American Enterprise Institute or the Foundation for Defense of Democracies. Uh, and then there's a middle ground here which sort of the Heritage Foundation and I believe the Center for American Progress fall into, where they um, they do provide a list of their of their funders and they do group them by giving level, but then they'll have just anonymous donors. They'll just say, hey, we had one donor that gave more than five hundred thousand dollars and they're anonymous and Okay. Cool. How passes as transparency is like you're nearly rubbing my face in it at that point. That you're like, <laughs> um, yeah, we're gonna tell you we're being transparent, but you can't know who that funder is. Um, I think that's really problematic, and 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 I I, th- I think that that's like that that's a pretty egregious policy that that I would hope would would be phased out soon.
0: Is there any reporting requirement at any level even internally like something that the public would not necessarily see uh, to track these things or it just doesn't it's it's not on paper anywhere on, oh, paper, on paper I guess you know.
1: uh, I mean I mean they, they I think they do need to provide some of this information to the IRS when they file their 990 there is a, uh, a the 990 tax filing, which is a disclosure that really the only version that we normally see for an organization is their public 990 but the, the private one, the one that goes to the IRS is a little closer to in concept to your personal income tax return. Um, so, so that includes some sections that, uh, that get redacted with the public version, which, which does list out uh, at least who some of the top funders um, are. So it, in that sense, yeah, it, that, that's definitely written down and submitted, uh, but in, in terms of the public having any access to that, there, there is no access. <laughs>
0: So you can't, I mean, I couldn't just like walk into AEI with a sack with a dollar sign on it, full of money and plop it down and say, keep my name out of this, but here here you go. Uh,
1: Uh, Yeah, you could. I've seen seen some of the, I can't speak to AEI directly, but I have seen um, on occasion, the uh, forms that are submitted to the IRS that actually do list out funders. And I have seen six, seven-figure contributions to think tanks. Uh, lit and, and when they're supposed to say what the source of it is to the IRS, they have said anonymous. Oh my. They put their okay. own address as, as the location that it came from. So that's good pretty Drop uh, Dropping off a sack of money. <laughs> so your second
0: uh, big recommendation has to do with the Foreign Agent Registration Act. Tell people what... At, at a very basic level, what is the Foreign Agent Registration Act? I mean, it, it, so the name sort of speaks for itself, but yeah, so uh, legally, what what is going on there?
1: Yeah, so it goes back to World War II. Uh, it is an antiquated statute, in fairness, needs updating. Uh, and back then, the idea was to make sure that there was some transparency and disclosure of um, Nazi propagandists inside the United States who were uh, taking direction from Nazi Germany and were, in turn, producing materials. Uh, so-called propaganda, I think it actually still refers to it as propaganda, um, that was uh, to be disseminated in the United States to influence the public debate and policymakers. So it could be a pamphlet, it could be a magazine. Uh, The point is, is you needed to disclose if you were the agent of a foreign principle. And to be clear, the foreign principle doesn't even have to be a foreign government. It can be an individual, it can be a company, it can be an organization. The point is, are you the agent of a foreign principle? And if you are, and a lot of people file FARA, it's not again, it's not a scarlet letter to do so. Uh, you, you have to disclose sort of, you know, what are the terms and what's the size of the contract, and you have to provide these supplemental statements periodically, where you where you actually say, you know, and here's some of the material, here's the materials, the propaganda, so-called propaganda that that I produced uh, uh, for the foreign principal. It can be sometimes emails are disclosed in that if you reached out to members of Congress, for instance uh again looking at norm coleman as an example his supplemental statement usually has a bunch of emails of him him sending news articles about saudi arabia to to members of congress that would be a good example of one type of material you might need to disclose if you put on an event maybe you would uh put the 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 the, the announcement for the event in 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 your supplemental statement for Farah. um and what that does is it gives people the knowledge that you are doing this on behalf of the foreign principal, and that you're and uh, the activities that you've undertaken. Uh, again, there are some exemptions. I, I believe there are ones, for instance, for business. Uh, if you're doing this as part of, you know, some Chinese company wants to um, uh, uh, hire an attorney or a spokesperson here to help them gain market access in some manner. Uh, I don't think that generally would fall into the category of disclosable activity. There's also an academic exemption, which is pretty big, uh, which is that if you're doing it uh, as as part of sort of academic uh, research. um, So universities might not have an obligation to disclose FERA if a foreign government or a foreign principal gives them a grant to do research in mathematics or in art um, or or what have you, that that might not be FERA registerable. but those are sort of the big exemptions that you hear about, and and again, think tanks don't clearly fall into one of those. I, I know that they've tried with the academic exemption uh, to suggest that what they do is somehow producing academic work, but that seems like a real stretch considering when you look at what their activities are. Um, a couple of think tanks have filed under FARA. There have been periodic FARA prosecutions, not of think tanks necessarily, but of individuals. Certainly under the, in the Trump years, we saw that. Um, and it'll be with Mike Flynn, uh, among others, uh, facing FARA violation charges. Um, but it, it's an area that's been under enforced. The Justice Department hasn't offered the, the clarity about who needs to register as as well as they should. But again, a reading of the statute and even just a reading of sort of the FAQ of the FARA section on the Justice Department website, um, it, it should raise concerns for a lot of think tanks. And, and I might add that it's not just about hey, you guys should file Farrah because, you know, it seems as if you're violating it. You should also be concerned that this is, you don't know where the political climate's gonna go and the Trump years should have shown you that the Justice Department can be politicized. Uh, you don't wanna have this hanging over your heads uh, when some, you know, when, there's a new attorney general who decides that they wanna prioritize FARA prosecutions uh, and decides to go after think tanks. Um, it, it really is, I, I believe, I think a number of think tanks are really exposing themselves and putting themselves in jeopardy in, in a manner that, um, that that really does 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 come at a high reputational and potentially legal uh, risk.
0: It's it, it is interesting. I mean, this all three of these recommendations really are sort of erring on the side of caution types of pieces of advice. But especially uh, with Farah, I mean, you you guys talk about. Um, the fact that it's not just on these think tanks, the government does a, a really lousy job, as you said, of sort of making clear what is and isn't covered. There are these kind of not m- maybe super well- defined exemptions. the The whole thing is,, you know, as you said, you know, at the beginning of this is is dated, uh, and needs to be updated. Um, so you know, there's there's a lot that's that's not necessarily, these think tanks trying to get away with something as, as much as it's just a system that, that is, you know, badly in need of fixing. But at the same time, you know, I think the idea is you want to make sure you're on the safe side of this, like you're on the right side of it. uh, You know, so err on the side of caution. And that's, that seems to be the, uh, you know, where you're, you guys are, are, you know, making these, these points uh, in all three, all three of these recommendations kind of err on the side of caution.
1: And I might add that there has been a growing public awareness and concern, um, justified or unjustified, over the past four years about the role of foreign influence in the US political process. Um, And the Foreign Agent Agent Registration Act is really, um, aside from some campaign finance laws, would be the major law that that if the Attorney General, if the Justice Department chose to prioritize going after um, potential foreign influence, that, that would be utilized. Uh, and again, it has been utilized in the past four years, uh, probably at a rate and level that actually exceeds where it's been in the past. I think there is a renewed interest in the Foreign Agent Registration Act and questions around foreign influence. And uh, if I were a think tank, uh, I would be looking pretty carefully at this because uh, again, what, when, if and when the Justice Department chooses to pursue this, um, you may want to have been ahead of it a little bit. Uh, by 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 at least uh, starting to consult with attorneys and consulting with the Justice Department about whether you need to register. Uh, there's there's also I think a, just a common attitude in Washington that well think tanks haven't been prosecuted under it. Well that's true. Most people who've been prosecuted under FARA weren't prosecuted under it before. Um, it, it's a matter of of you look at the statute and see if the activities that you're engaged in seem to be fall under uh, registrable activities
0: your third recommendation which is it strikes me as sort of the most obvious of the three like i mean i can i can understand you know on, uh, in terms of transparency saying you know well i've got a funder who wants to be anonymous what should i do with that or far uh, you know it's complicated it's a legal thing you know i don't necessarily understand uh, what my requirements are but disclosing potential conflicts of interest is like basic stuff i mean it is uh, the one of the most obvious uh, things that an organization like like a think tank or a university or any institution like that uh, should do, uh, and yet, you know, talk about what you you found here in, in terms of how poorly some of these places actually actually do this.
1: Yeah, I mean, this is uh, again not to pick on Michelle Fornoy too much, uh, but. Uh, You know, the United Arab Emirates paid the Center for New American Security, something like a quarter million dollars for a report, um, for them to produce a report that that recommended exporting military grade drones to the UAE and other countries. Um, The report made no mention of the UAE funding and, you know, in, in fairness, as we talked about earlier, you know, people don't like to think that they're engaging in pay for play. And even in that circumstance, where maybe the United Arab Emirates and Yusuf al otaiba and, and you know, the, the, because of the, the Otaiba email leaks, we've even seen the uh, the, the 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 bill for it. Um, it basically said, I'm going to give you a quarter million dollars to write a report on drones, um, and that was it. They cut the check, they signed the document. That was all that happened. Um, if I then had a report that came out that said, hey, we should export military-grade drones to the UAE. Uh, and even just by coincidence, the UAE helped fund that report. I think it's pretty crucial that you say, hey, the UAE funded this report or partially funded the work that went into this report. You can still say they didn't have any influence over the actual work. They didn't get to review it before it was published. You can you can put all sorts of stuff in there about that. But the idea that you that you know that there's no expectation, uh, that, and I've seen the Center for American Progress do do the similar thing, writing a report on on US policy in the Middle East, recommending uh, arms sales and increasing uh, uh, diplomatic closeness with countries like the UAE, uh, and failing to disclose that the UAE was a funder, uh, or even that there was a former UAE embassy staffer who they later hired at Center for American Progress and let him be an author on the report. Um, These are potential conflicts of interest. Is it a conflict or isn't it? At the bare minimum, you should let the readers be the judge of that. And again, you can still defend the integrity of your work. But I just think it's absolutely, uh, yeah, this is real low-level baseline standards of, hey, if that happens to be the circumstances, you should probably tell people. Um, because if people find out later, as as they did in the case of CNAS and of Center for American Progress, um, oh, it, it doesn't look good. <laughs> Uh, especially when you didn't disclose it, I, I wonder. I mean, one
0: of the the sort of things that happened last fall, uh, kind of on the sidelines of the uh, the war in Karabakh between you know Armenia and Azerbaijan, was there was these uh, the rise of these like op eds from people working at ostensibly you know kind of think tanky. Institutions who are who were getting money from uh, more Azerbaijan, I think. I mean, there was a little flurry of uh, pieces on sort of the amount of money that was being thrown around, kind of lobbying for Azerbaijan and how that was making its way into kind of uh, you know op-ed writing and and so forth. I wonder if you saw some of that kind of during that that particular period. It seemed to be a, a major kind of uh again sort of like a a real flurry of activity of suspicious activity i would say along
1: these lines yeah i mean i think that's a microcosm of of exactly what we're talking about here and uh i, I might add that i i think that i think that public news, news publications newspapers and online publications have an obligation as well to to start asking a little bit um and it's not something I've, I've been writing about a bit more recently. Is you know when you have you know Raytheon director writing in the Washington Post that that, that the U.S. shouldn't withdraw from Afghanistan, uh, and when you have Brett Stevens writing in the Wall Street Journal that uh, sorry in the New York Times that um, uh, the United States needs to basically back uh, Benjamin Netanyahu in 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 bombarding Gaza. Um, and you don't disclose that he has actually in March took a side job at an Israel advocacy organization. Um, it, 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 at some point, you can't just blame the the journalists or the columnists or the lobbyists or the consultants who are writing this stuff. Um, I, I think that there's a degree of responsibility that, that, that the publications have themselves. Uh, and I, I do believe, I guess, with the Azerbaijan money, that that, that there was a lack of disclosure from the Publications. And, and what's really funny is that in some of those instances, I believe, and I've seen other ones with foreign governments, op eds show up in FARA registrations. <laughs> so <laughs> if they are choosing to follow the law, uh, right, right. show up. And that doesn't look so good for the publications that published it and didn't disclose it at the time when your stuff shows up in somebody's supplemental FARA registration and you didn't disclose it when you published them. Um, now, I don't think, again, talk about low standards. I don't think most publications ask, um, and and that's something that I've been involved with setting up the publication at at Quincy Institute called Responsible Statecraft. To the best of my knowledge, we're one of the only publications in the Beltway and that publishes on foreign policy that asks uh, contributors some really basic questions before we publish them. It's like you know, do you have any foreign clients? Is there any potential conflict of interest between? you know, your outside clients, uh, your outside employer, and the material that you're publishing with us. just open-ended, but you know, is there anything we need to know? And we could probably make it better and make it a tighter um, set of questions that would box people in a little more. But I I think the fact that we're even trying is super unusual. I know as a journalist, I have never been asked those questions. I have never signed any sort of a, a conflict of interest disclosure. Uh, and I know, with I've gone and looked at scientific journals, and and actually that's pretty common. They have pretty good uh, uh, conflict of interest disclosures, but they ask you to sign for, for maybe a scientific one or mathematics, um, engineering, they, 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 it's, it's one page. It's kind of similar to what we ask people to do at Responsible Statecraft. It basically says, is there anything we need to know? Um, and we're not gonna go digging. The onus is on, we've asked the question, and we'd like you to tell us the truth. Uh, we assume you're going to tell us the truth. We're going to go in. We're giving you the benefit of the doubt here, but um, you know, just we're asking the question, and, and I don't think that happens at, really at all. This, I mean, this really is.
0: Uh, I think you're you're making a, a very good point. This is one of the maybe the 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 one of these three recommendations that could really be uh, almost imposed from outside the think tanks by the institutions that rely on think tank researchers to do things like writing op-eds, like, you know, advising uh, the government or corporations. Uh, Another area, you know, where uh, you see people, you know, think tank researchers all the time is testifying before Congress. How well does Congress do at sort of teasing out these potential conflicts of interest before people come and testify?
1: Uh, Well, I guess I would say, Not that well, but in fairness to Congress, there's probably been a bigger effort uh, and interest in it um, by members of Congress than anywhere else I can, I can identify other than maybe investigative journalists like myself. Um, So people who testify before Congress have to fill out something called the truth and testimony form where you disclose if you have uh, um, basically government or foreign uh, funders or clients. Now, Unfortunately, enforcement of it has not been great. One one common pattern we have observed, excuse me, is people who will say that, yeah, I'm here testifying as a senior fellow at, um, let's say the Atlantic Council, and I'm going to be talking about uh, US Gulf policy. um, And my uh, prepared remarks are gonna be on Atlantic Council letterhead. And I'm going to uh, be introduced as my, by my affiliation with the Atlantic Council. And I'm going to um, uh, uh, when they talk about when they list who's testifying at the hearing, I'll be listed by my Atlantic Council affiliation. And when I fill out my truth and testimony form, I'm going to say I'm only testifying on my own behalf. Um, so you never have to disclose who Atlantic Council's potential foreign funders are. You never have to disclose um, any of that. And I was, that's a pretty egregious thing. That goes on a lot. So enforcement could be better. Uh, I think that there actually is interest, though, by members of Congress to try to curtail this. I think they, identify, they know it's a problem. Um, and I think that they know that they have potentially some teeth to try to get into it. One thing that Ben Freeman and I have, have discussed is that at a certain point, individual members of Congress may even be able to just sort of ask hard questions themselves. Uh, you know, you have somebody in front of you who's coming from a think tank who doesn't disclose their funders. What would happen if you just said, I need to know who your funders are? Um, I, I don't know how that would play out. I would like to see someone try it. Um, but I, I think that I think that, that congressional testimony is an area where, where I think we may see it, it, an increased push to try to get that type of disclosure. Um, so again, from the think tanks side, there are other moving pieces here that may start to uh, force these types of conflicts of interest and your funders into the public's eye uh again if i was running a think tank i would want to be ahead of that i would like it to be something where when these things come out it's not because i was forced to i want it to be something where i got to control it how it came out and i get to say hey i was being transparent Uh, i think the trend is toward greater transparency and if i were running a think tank i would want to be ahead of that so i want to i think that's
0: That's where we could sort of leave this for now. I I think uh, people should definitely check out the report. It's restoring trust in the think tank sector. I'll have a link to it in the show description. Uh, You can find it at the Quincy Institute's uh, website. Uh, You wrote a piece yesterday, and, and we sort of touched a little bit on the revolving door Problem. Uh, We were, again, we were picking on Michelle Flournoy earlier. Yeah, don't mean to pick on her, but uh, she is an example. Um, We touched on this sort of revolving door problem people kind of going off and doing their consultancies or their lobbying and then, you know, kind of coming back to government and uh, moving back and forth between these worlds. You wrote a piece uh, yesterday uh, on Joe Biden's nominee for uh, Secretary of the Air Force, Frank Kendall III. Um, And I I did want to ask you to sort of run through his resume for a second and and tell people what, uh, you know, what is what does he exemplify about this sort of uh, problem of people moving from government to the private sector, back to government, and back and forth like that?
1: Yeah, I mean, I I think he's a fascinating example. Um, He served as Undersecretary of Defense for Acquisition, Technology and Logistics in the Obama administration. Um, So clearly he has experience Um, and over the past four years and I believe it's my impression that defense contractors seek these people out as I discussed earlier because you wanna have a good relationship with them because somebody of that caliber there's a good chance they're headed back into government when uh, a Democrat is elected president which indeed seems to be the case that he is headed back in in the Biden administration. Uh, And his financial disclosure showed that he received $702,000 in consulting fees from Northrop Grumman, uh, for as part of a $300,000 per year consulting contract, and between $500,000 and a million dollars in a company called Lados or Lidos, another uh, defense contractor's stock for his board membership, uh, and that was part of a package where he received $125,000 in cash, $150,000 in stock per year. And what this really just shows is, you know, in four years, look at you know one of the top two of the top defense contractors in this country identified this guy, said, we need to get him on a consulting gig. We need to get him on our board. Um, and now he's going back to the revolving door, back in the government, back into a position where potentially he'll be involved in making procurement decisions. And, you know, again, he probably doesn't think of it as pay for play. He probably doesn't think he's for sale, but he also must be, he must be aware because he had to put it in his own public financial disclosure that, hey, they did shovel a lot of money into him. Uh, in the past four years. Uh, now, obviously, he says he'll terminate those relationships, um, potentially sell some of the stock, uh, but he still gets to keep the money. Uh, and that, that that that's kind of uh, the, what's become sort of an accepted process of you know how you go through the revolving door, how you go out of government. Four years later, you're you know over a million dollars uh, richer from having de- the defense contractors take care of you. Uh, and and at least got to raise the question in one's mind of well, are you gonna help take care of them uh, when you head back into government? Um, and, and finally, I, I would just, with him, I, I, one of the things I look at recently a lot are are the earnings calls from the defense contractors because they, they talk really honestly on these calls to investors every quarter. Uh, and Northrop Grumman, again, gave $700,000 to, uh, to Kendall, um, basically said that, you know, we believe our capabilities will remain well aligned with US national security priorities uh, and emphasized that the quote, the Biden administration has signaled that it views competition with China as the most pressing long-term security challenge and will invest in the capabilities needed to maintain U.S. national security advantages. So as we sort of veer toward a cold war with China, this is what Northrop Grumman has identified as potentially very good for their business, uh, and they've been paying the guy who's going to be uh, running the Air Force for uh, for, for Joe Biden. Uh, and I, I think that that kind of shows you again not just how the revolving door works, but also how the echo chamber works. Uh, you know, it's not that big a space and there are a number of people who have a strong financial interest in sort of fanning the flames of of future conflicts for the United States and and a great power competition with China is something that a number of the defense contractors have been talking about as very good for their bottom line especially when it comes to 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 defense to contracts with the Pentagon
0: we'll leave it on that disappointing <laughs> note uh. <laughs> <laughs> but uh eli clifton uh again uh thanks for coming on the program and uh people should definitely check out the the report. uh they should check out your work at uh responsible statecraft and and elsewhere um and uh yeah if there's anything i mean is there any uh anything you'd like to plug for uh, uh for listeners to to go look at
1: no just take a look at our report um check out the url and. Um... And thanks thanks so much for having me, Derek. This has been fun.
0: Thanks, Eli. Take care.
1: Great.
0: All right, that will do it for us this week. Uh, once again, that report is called Restoring Trust in the Think Tank Sector by Eli Clifton of the Quincy Institute and Ben Freeman of the Center for International Policy. You can find it at the Quincy Institute's website, quincyinst.org. And I will also have a link to it in the show description. So you could just click that and and it really would be much simpler, I guess. Uh, I do want to thank again, Eli Clifton for coming on the program to kind of walk us through uh, the landscape of DC think tanks and their funding and how they handle their funding and to uh, take us through some of the the conclusions that he and ben drew in their report i highly recommend uh, that you check it out uh i also want to thank all of you as ever for checking out the podcast and uh until next time uh take care and i'll talk to you soon bye-bye